Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Uh, Lord Jesus, we are a people always in need, whether it is a building fund, whether it is volunteer hours, whether it is a health concern, whether it is our own finances or our own fears or our own family or our own relationship, there it will be one day and one day only where all of our needs are finally and fully met. And so Lord, shape our hearts with a longing for that. May it shape our lives on this side of the grave, on this side of your wonderful return. And we ask, Lord, that it shapes our church in a distinct way as well. We pray as we look at your wisdom in the book of Proverbs that it nourishes us and brings us life and joy that we find you ever faithful in every area of our life. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, We are continuing to work through our study of the book of Proverbs, but we've reached a point, we're in chapter 13, where the pace at which we progress through this book is going to pick up quite quickly. In the first nine chapters, we encountered the prologue of Solomon, and those nine chapters were pretty concentric. They built off each other. They were a whole literary unit, but the further we've gotten from chapter nine, the more sporadic the Proverbs have become. While there are larger thought groups still left in the book, and when those appear, we're going to stop and kind of look at those as we have in the past, it seems like from this point on, and maybe you experienced it when Daniel just read the passage for us, that the Proverbs are increasing in their pace of just kind of like this Gatling gun of individual Proverbs fired at you at an endless rate. In his commentary on the book of Proverbs, Charles Bridges said that this second part of the book of Proverbs is distinct from the first, and that the first part treated the, the son as a child and explained slowly the realm of wisdom. But the second part is meant to teach a child how to be an adult. It progresses with you. And because of that, some of the form and structure begins to fall away. Another commenter talked about how that first part is really concentric. It makes sense as you read it. It's kind of a poem that builds off of itself. But this latter half begins to show you the rate at which you will need to process wisdom. And that rate is the pace of life itself. Life is not like a classroom schedule where the topics and skills we need are neatly apportioned for us to walk through and cleanly transition one to the next. In fact, just think about all of the wisdom decisions and counsel you needed this morning. Maybe your alarm went off and you woke up in a panic, wondering if you overslept, if you had enough time to get the kids ready to go to church. It's finals week for our college students. Maybe you thought your exam was on Thursday and woke up in a sweat, realizing perhaps it's tomorrow. You make your way to the bathroom and you begin to brush your teeth. And as your eyes are starting to get clear of that morning fog, you see your face isn't as trim as it used to be. You begin to plan a workout, but then you wonder how that workout's going to conflict with your work schedule or community group later on that evening. You go to fill up your bowl of cereal because the look in the mirror wasn't enough to dissuade you from those sweet, sweet golden grams. And as you're eating it, you realize that you're out of milk. You need to go to the store. That reminds you, you have a large grocery list, and yet it's the last week of the month. The budget's pretty tight. How are you going to cut and make room for what you have left to spend? And then sure enough, you roll to church after the first or the second or right now song. And you get here and you try to focus and then you wonder if that kid making all that noise is going to distract you the whole time until you realize that kid is probably your kid. And then you wonder if all these people are judging you as you're sitting here. As the book of Proverbs shows us, there is this ever-shifting pace of life, but praise God that God's wisdom moves at an ever-shifting pace as well. And in the midst of all of these nuanced and intricate decisions and moments we have in life, the principle of Proverbs reigns true, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
If we want to make sense of life, there is no structure, there is no scheme, there is no class to teach you how to live except for humbling ourselves to see the world how God wants us to see it. That's what wisdom is, seeing the world through God's eyes. This means first we realize that God is God and we are not and we submit ourselves to what he has given us in his word. But it means secondly, we have the, pr- the, the privilege of not only seeing that God is the authority, the creator of all of the patterns we encounter in life, but that he is worthy of being trusted in every area of wisdom and discernment because he has saved us. And his salvation for us, when we see Christ as the means of our salvation, we can trust him with everything. You see, behind these Proverbs is not just the reality that God knows best, but the reality that in Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God, that we actually get to know the God who knows best. Wisdom is relational with God himself. And it gets even better when we realize that God has an opinion on almost everything in our life, which means every time you encounter a need for wisdom, from your alarm clock to your teeth brushing, your cereal eating, and your driving late to work or church, every encounter you have with your need of wisdom is a moment where you get to encounter the sufficiency of God himself. This is why this middle portion of Proverbs, though difficult to sometimes preach, is so wonderful. It goes to show all of the ways in which our life is meant to be lived in result of God's faithfulness to us in his salvation. Where God's faithfulness in Jesus shows us that he can redeem us from all of our sin. God's wisdom for us in Jesus shows us that he can help us with all of our thoughts. Each proverb in this book, which there's roughly 800 of them, is not simply a neatly packaged piece of advice. Each proverb is a window into a world made possible when we really believe that God is trustworthy in Jesus Christ, that he draws us into himself and begins to restore creation as it was intended through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yet for us to spend adequate time on each proverb would mean we spend an eternity in this book. And so in light of this, today's sermon is going to be a little different than the rest of the sermons we're going to preach. It's actually going to be distinct from any sermon we have ever preached to my knowledge here at Sovereign Hope. And that's because we're not going to cover every passage in the book of Proverbs, and yet we need to learn how to read every passage in the book of Proverbs. So what we're going to do is we're going to slow down and we're going to look at Proverbs 13:20 through 14:13. Another one got lopped off since I talked to Daniel this morning. And what we're going to do is we are going to slow down. We're just going to encounter proverb by proverb and think on them. You see the proverbs read fast but they think slow. And that's where we get so beheld to the biggest numbers in our Bible where we feel like when we sit down to read we have to get from one big number to another big number or else we haven't read the Bible. Proverbs disrupts that because those little numbers are often thoughts that take a lot of time to unpack. And so normally when we preach, we look at what a text unit has to say as a whole. And maybe when Daniel was reading it, you're like, what is the main point of all of this? And it's just be wise, but that's not helpful um, at this point. And so we're going to slow down and we're going to process through this. This is unique for us. And the goal is twofold. One, that we would learn how to read the Proverbs devotionally, that we would feel the freedom when we find a glimpse in that relational wonder of God's wisdom, that we would stop, that we would sit, and that we would consider the reality behind that wisdom. But then secondly, my hope is we're not going to exhaust the eight Proverbs we're going to look at today. They're not going to be a full sermon on each. So what I want you to do is to kind of bookmark the ones that stand out to you And circle back to those in your devotions this week. Talk to them on the way home with your family or with your community group this week and spend a little more time pondering on them. And so with that said, uh, we're gonna start rolling through these. It's gonna be awkward for me as a preacher. I'm gonna try to make this 
uh, normal length sermon, but every urge in me is to like set up a neat introduction, application, conclusion. And if I do that, just start throwing things at me. This could be the worst experiment we've ever done in church, but we're all here for it and it'll be historic nonetheless. So with that said, um, we're going to dive in to our first kind of proverb today. And this is chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. My wife and I are suckers for any sort of true crime documentary, and this passage shows what those generally prove to a T, and that is that no matter how pure your intentions or how naive your mind is, if you fall in with the wrong crowd, you will get swept up in their problems. Now, I want to preface this by saying there's a difference between friendship with a sinner and having an intimate, unguarded relationship with a fool. You see, by God's grace, Jesus came to befriend sinful fools. Jesus moved towards sinners. He had mercy towards sinners. He had compassion on sinners. He communicated his love to sinners. And yet Jesus understood that he was right in his view of reality and that they were wrong. And because of that, his relationship with the sinners did not influence Jesus's actions in this life. In other words, Jesus was not negatively affected by the decision-making of the fools with which he kept counsel. And as we live with sinners and fools in our own lives, we need to be sober enough to recognize the places where those relationships begin to wrap our thoughts around their thoughts, our lives around their lives, our loves around their loves, and our hope around their hope. And what this proverb says is, should that to happen, it will be to your detriment. You will suffer harm. Now, many of you perhaps know somebody like this. Somebody who when you hang out with, your humor changes Your language changes, your habits change. And we might import a false sense of like nefarious intent, like that these people are just evil people. And you see them, you're like, they're not evil. They're not wanting to harm me. But look at the reason why in verse 21. It's because disaster pursues sinners. They don't have to have poor intent. They don't have to intentionally want to harm harm you. The problem of this is, is that sin benefits no one. Sin is the problem. Sin is what hurts. Sin is what maims. Sin is what destroys. But here's this bittersweet hope. Bitter in that falling in and being influenced by a fool leads to sin, which causes harm. But sweet in the regard that God wants you to know this. God wants to deliver you from this. And this is where Solomon prescribes that we ought to walk with the wise so that we do not share in their disaster, but instead in their good reward. I think this proverb is particularly helpful to those who are young or perhaps in school. School's this weird place where perhaps because of necessity or maybe because of lack of alternative options, you sometimes befriend the fool. And we think that this is just what you do A fool is those who find joy in what the Bible says leads to disaster. But pursuing those relationships in junior high, in high school, in college, at a continuing ed conference when you're an adult, wherever that is, you can justify it by a myriad of reasons. But when their life begins to shape your life, disaster follows. Instead, what would it look like for you to walk with the wise. Now, the first thing we want to think about is those who are wise in our lives, in our church, in our community group, in our home, and that is good. But first consider what does it mean to walk with Jesus, who is the wisest of all men. And even in his stature of knowing all things, he has this wonderful penchant of inviting you to follow him. (laughs) There are plenty of wise people in the world Not many of them care for you, but here is Jesus, who is wisdom par excellence, who says, follow me. Take my yoke upon you. Take, did I say that right? (laughs) He is inviting us to fellowship with him. 
What does it look like to walk with Jesus? Because the truth is you could grab this text and you could find wise mentor in the business world, wise mentor in the relational world, but to not walk with Jesus is to ultimately have disaster catch up to you. But to walk with Jesus is to benefit from his good reward, which is redemption by grace through faith in him. That's it. That's the first problem we're gonna look at. I have no snazzy conclusion. Now we're gonna go into the next one. <laughs> Proverbs 13, 22 through 23. This is a theme we're gonna spend more time on actually next week. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. So have you ever seen those pictures where on the one hand, you, at first glance, it looks like two old ladies looking at each other, and then you look again, and it's like a rabbit or something like that? This is one of those Proverbs, where at first glance, it seems like a proverb on financial wisdom. And the beautiful thing about Proverbs is, it does give us financial wisdom. The sinner here is completely unconcerned with passing down financial wealth to those who come behind him. Maybe... He's semi-decent, and he's at least concerned about his children. But for this man to think about his children's children, his grandchildren, is completely out of his mind. His spending habits, his saving, his debt, his consumer lifestyle takes no care of much beyond himself. But a good person here sees how wise financial habits could be a legacy of help to others. This could look as simple as, while you don't have a lot of money, you are conscious about where you spend so as not to leave an exorbitant amount of debt to your family or friends when you pass. Or this could like proactively changing patterns and trying to lay up, to store up blessings not for you to enjoy, but for others to enjoy. I know over the course of our building fund, there have been donations that have come in that are given out of an inheritance of a grandparent or a loved one who has passed away. Here in this instance, not only are their grandchildren blessed, but these who passed away might not even know our church, and yet their grandchildren are sharing that blessing with an entire church. What a beautiful picture of what it looks like to view finances through the lens of God. But as we read verse 22 and 23 together, we realize there's more than meets the eye in this text. Solomon ends verse 22 by saying that the sinner lays up his riches for the righteous. And that doesn't quite make sense to us until we read verse 23. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away by injustice. On its own, this verse is just a devastating verse on reality, isn't it? There's no, he's not like, but it gets better. But those who do injustice will ultimately be caught. But it's restored to him. He just says it and leaves it out there. Here's this man, this poor man who has a field. He's tilled it. He's cared for it. It is rich in nutrients. It is ready to be planted in. It's going to yield a rich crop. And yet, despite all the labor he puts into it, as soon as that crop grows, someone with power comes in and takes that from them and through injustice, they are robbed. This story makes us think of Naboth's vineyard in 2 Kings chapter 21, where Naboth was this man who had this beautiful vineyard outside the gates of the palace, minding his own business, but then King Ahaz, the king of Israel, who was abundantly wicked, despite all he had and wanted, he wanted that vineyard. And so he went to Naboth and he tried to convince him to sell it. And Naboth said, no, this belonged to my grandparents. This is part of God's inheritance to me. I won't sell it even to you. And so Ahaz goes and pouts and Ahaz's wife notices that he's upset and she's even more wicked than Ahaz. So what she does is she extorts the power of the throne. She goes and she has Ahab murdered and then the problem is solved and she presents the vineyard to King Ahaz. Naboth didn't stand a chance in that power scheme. Injustice reigned supreme. And today, more than ever, our world is realizing stories of injustice daily. Our hearts, 
our cultural hearts are wrestling with it, whether we see it as a problem near to us or distant from us, we cannot escape the thought of it. And while we ought to fight for justice wherever we have the influence, we also know the prevalence of injustice seems like something we cannot escape. But this is where we see the full picture of these two verses. Injustice exists. And it is a painful perversion of God's ideal world. But in looking at the end of verse 22, in the end, wealth gained by those through injustice will ultimately be restored back. For a world that cries for justice, the God of justice stands as the answer to all of our hopes. One day, wicked gain through deceit and through oppression and sin will be taken away from those who received it and given to the righteous. What the wicked gain in life will ultimately lead to their death. Doesn't this give us hope as we encounter the seeming endlessness of injustice in our world? Doesn't this help us reconcile what we encounter in life and the words of scripture, even as we labor for justice? Even as we fight for justice, whatever justice we get is still not impartial. It is justice according to men and women who are peers and yet are not omniscient, who are not impartial who are themselves the best we have, but they are not God. But here stands the God of justice who says one day all wickedness, all oppression, all injustice will ultimately be judged and there will be no gain for those who live that way. But instead, the righteous will reap the rewards of faithfulness. Our hope as we try to uphold justice in all of the spheres you are in is that one day justice will flow like a river in God's new heaven and new earth. But more than that, if you are really concerned about justice, then you must recognize that you are part of the problem of injustice. Jesus shared a parable in Matthew 21. It's another story about a vineyard. But in this vineyard, in this story, Jesus is the true son of the vineyard, the one who owns it and who has a right to it. And when he went to gather the fruit that was rightfully his, his servants killed him and took what was never theirs. Injustice reigned. The point of Jesus' story was that those Jews to whom the Messiah had come and preached the gospel of restoration, they had killed the one who owned the vineyard. They had murdered or were going to murder the son of God himself. You see, justice is ultimately an issue of worship. To rob God of worship is to sweep away for yourself what belongs only to the king of kings and lord of lords. Every heart to have had a thought where God is not king is the heart of injustice for which you are are guilty of treason. But the beautiful good news of the gospel is the son who went to the vineyard to be killed is also the hope for those guilty of injustice. His death becomes your death by faith. He pays the penalty of what your hands have wrought so that you might be declared innocent and righteous despite knowing our posture our hearts have had towards God and towards others. So if you want justice, hope in Christ. If you want justice, stand in Christ. If you want freedom from the constant crawl of injustice in this world, stand in Christ. If you want the confidence that one day every wicked deed done in public and in private will be turned on its head and reparations will be made, stand in Christ. For it is our hope we have in God sorting all of this out that we can adequately look at justice and our responsibility in it. We'll talk more about that next week. Our next parable is a parable that goes into parenting. Proverbs 13, my kids would think it normal to go from injustice into parenting, but Solomon does the same thing here. Um, Proverbs 13, verse 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. So this, is a re- this verse is a really good exercise in slowing down to read the Proverbs. 
Because when we encounter parenting things, whether you're a child or a single person or a parent, what we often focus on is the child, right? We think of Proverbs like Proverbs 22.6, train a child on the way in which he should go and he shall not depart from it. Like the goal is the child's life, the fruit it bears in the child's decision-making. But what's not to be missed here is that when we slow down, the actions of the child and the end of what the child's life will be are not what's being discussed, is it? Instead, this passage is less about the conformity of the child and more about the heart of the parent. On display is a heart which hates their child and a heart which loves their child. How are you to discern which heart is yours? By judging your own posture towards discipline. Even more to the point, the parent who loves their child is diligent to discipline him. In other words, the parent themselves is the one that's being placed under discipline in this text. It's not quick discipline. It's not selfish discipline. It's not pithy discipline. It's not uncontrolled discipline. It is diligent discipline. In the same way an athlete disciplines themselves in the training room so that in that clutch moment their diligence might be on display, so too is a parent ought to so too is a parent to exercise godly diligence in their discipline. How do we know what this looks like and how is this applicable to those in here who don't have any children? Because Hebrews makes it applicable to all of us. In Hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 through 6 He says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. What does discipline have to do with anyone? (laughs) That discipline is actually a goal for all of the children of God because it reminds us that we are loved by him, that we are his children, that he calls us child. Discipline from God shows and proves that God is not unconcerned with us, that he loves us, that he wants what's best for us, that he seeks to protect us. And so even in moments of our life where God is disciplining us by either causing us to face a consequence, a natural consequence of sin, or by withholding from us the very thing we long for in our sinful pursuits, we know that in those moments, God is loving us, that he is not far from us, he has not forgotten us, but that he is concerned with us. We also see in the way God has treated us that his discipline is not sporadic, it's consistent. We're not surprised, right? If anyone were to be surprised, that God is disciplining them. They're not reading Proverbs. God makes it clear. Hey, if you sin, it's gonna hurt. So don't sin and then get hurt and say, no one warned me. It's consistent. We know that sin will not reward us. And God's discipline is consistent. God's discipline is not done in anger or by things which simply annoyed him. God's discipline is firm towards that which is truly sinful. God's discipline of us was not easy. Discipline is not easy. It is difficult to put down my phone, to get up off the couch, to leave the dinner table, to eat 15 minutes after everyone else is eating, to care for my children in discipline. But I promise you this, it was more costly for Christ to leave his throne in heaven and condescend to the form of a servant so that we might be disciplined as children by grace. And it's that kind of diligent discipline that God is not only loving each of us who are his children, but that God is calling parents to exhibit towards their children. In other words, the way in which you think about discipline shows the way in which you think about loving your children and being loved by God. Our next proverb picks up on a theme we've encountered a lot in the book. We talked about it a little bit last week. This is verses 25 through, so the last verse of chapter 13 and first verse of chapter 14. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. 
the wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. So we've talked about this idea a lot, and it's something social scientists call the hedonistic treadmill. In that just as when you're running on a treadmill, you're always running, you're always taking one step after another, but you're never actually going anywhere, so too is the perception of fulfillment in the world. You're always trying to be fulfilled by something, by the iPhone, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and at some point, when do we realize it's not working? (laughs) That behind whatever object we're consuming, we never say, at last, I have tasted and I shall never eat again. There's always something more. There's always another thing. The prophet Isaiah picks this up in Isaiah chapter nine when speaking about his contemporaries. Chapter nine, verse 20, he says this. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. You see, the danger of sin is not that it will not fill your mouth. The danger with sin is that it will never satisfy your hunger. That you can consume and consume and consume and consume whatever it is, but at the end, you will eat your own arm and you will only suffer harm. But in contrast to this, God's righteous provision to those who are righteous, those who seek the gospel, is satisfaction. They have what they need to be filled. Why do they have what they need? Proverbs 14, verse one, the wisest woman builds a house, but a foolish one tears it down with her own hands. And here we run into the constant theme in Proverbs of the two women, Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. To walk in the way of Lady Wisdom is to trust that God and God alone knows what's best for you. That in sending his son to die for your sins and restore him back to a life of serving him, you really can trust that this God is able to care For everything, if he was able to care for you at the most ultimate level, then would he not also care for you at the daily level? By walking through life and obeying God's words, you're not actually trusting in yourself. You're not actually trusting in your decisions. You're not actually even trusting in wisdom. What you're trusting in when you're choosing to obey God is that God promises to build the house for those who walk in him. You're trusting in the relational faithfulness of God himself, that he will build it, and that you just get to live it. But in contrast to that is Lady Folly. And this is seen as a house that you're laboring hard to build. You try to build satisfaction by your own joy and by your own effort, and effort it takes, doesn't it? We are building a church. I would much rather have Lady Wisdom build it at this point. It takes effort. And the irony is, is Lady Folly is a great encourager for your own self-righteousness. She says, buy this, take this, eat this, wear this, work here, drive there, live there, love here, do, 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 do. And yet, as soon as she gives you that brick, she reaches around your back and tears down the one you just set. It never satisfies. A great application of this book, of this passage here is to look back. Look back at all of the times you chose to shortchange God's word and find joy, satisfaction, belonging, intimacy by the terms of the world and not the terms of God. And what house is there for you to point to? What is there that your own sinful actions did not almost immediately show to be incomplete to provide what they promise? how much more then ought we to look forward to what God has promised to do for those who walk in faithfulness to the gospel. Our next proverb picks up on this in a similar tone, but presents it in a profound way. Proverbs 14, verse two. Whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his way despises him. Here's something incredibly profound when it comes to reading the book of Proverbs, and that is this. How we act in wisdom or in foolishness is first and foremost a reflection of what you believe about God. 
When we read Proverbs, it's easy to skip to the parts that say, tell me how to act. Tell me where to apply wisdom. But how we can act, we see here in Proverbs 14 verse two, starts with what we fear. That is, application begins with the fear of the Lord. We've talked about this before. Fear of the Lord is a reverent reliance upon God. This means the key to Proverbs is not only understanding that we need to rely on God, but that God is worthy of being relied upon. I've seen enough, uh, read enough war uh, stories, seen enough films that personify that fateful soldier who knows full well he is being commanded by his superior to march into a situation where he is certainly going to die. (laughs) He understands the need to fear that commander and he obeys. How many of us think that that is what it's like obeying God? That he's God, he's king, but this is death. But when we see what God has done on the cross to save us through Jesus Christ, not only do we see that God is the authority who is able to command, but he is the authority we desire to obey. Our posture towards walking in wisdom and walking in foolishness is unmasked here as the posture of your trustworthiness of God in Jesus Christ. You either see him and respond to him or you despise him and turn from him. Wisdom is not about intellect or problem solving. Wisdom is about your heart towards God. And just as devastating it is to turn back and examine your life and see there is no house of sin, it is just as fearful to look forward and say no to the tangible treasures of sin and say yes to the invisible hope of the gospel. That is not easy. But our conversion to Jesus Christ means we have this sign of God's faithfulness in our hearts. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is there with us, encouraging us, reminding our hearts that God is faithful, that obedience is often costly, but that God's salvation and pleasure is never ending for those who stand in the righteousness of Jesus. You see, without Jesus, we will always be devious. We'll always be deviant from that path because it goes against everything our flesh says is true. But when we see who Jesus is, he reorganizes our eyes to see the reality behind it, that God is faithful and that sin is dangerous. With Jesus, we are wooed affectionately and relationally to this good God and his love for us that is seen ultimately in his provision of his son for our sins. The next verse Proverbs 14, three. We're not spend a lot of time on this. Pretty self-evident. By the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. The mouth can get you into a lot of trouble. The mouth, it says, can also deliver you from a lot of trouble. How many of you have committed to things too quickly? Things you shouldn't have committed to? How many of you have promised something you shouldn't have promised? How many of you have said something where the moment it left your mouth, you wished words were tangible and you could grab it and bring it back, but you can't? How many of you, for the sake of trying to be funny, has said something that has caused hurt or harm? We all do this. But what is our hope? It's not only that we watch our mouth, but actually that we would use our mouth to seek forgiveness from those whom we have sinned against and to pursue repentance against or repentance with God, which is who we have first sinned against. If we are ones who are quick to talk, which is just about all of us, let us also be those who are quick with our mouths to seek forgiveness from others and with our mouths to repent towards God. Our next verse today is my favorite verse in our passage, Proverbs 14, verse four. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of an ox. Proverbs are timely for any time. That's what makes God's word wonderful. But this proverb is, I think, particularly helpful for us in our world today. The point of of this proverb is this, a clean manger shows really well. But if your oxen isn't eating, neither are you. In other words, what is most fruitful is not what's most photogenic. What is most faithful often comes with the least amount of fanfare. 
We live in a world which values the pretty and the put together, but God values fruitfulness and faithfulness above it all. I'm gonna talk in a moment here to you dudes. I'm gonna talk to the ladies here for a second because I think for good or bad reasons, this text or the idols that are behind it kind of weigh heavily on you because for whatever reason, there is a unique burden of appearance that comes upon you in your homes, in your, in your bodies, in your clothes that is unique. Here's the hope of the gospel in this. Because here God says a house filled with a mess of people is better than a house pristine without people. The manger is where the oxen eat. If our kitchen is messy because we're doing the work of feeding kids or hosting your neighbors or baking goods to give to those who are sick, God is not at all disappointed in you. So what if you don't look like Joanna Gaines? Guess what? I love Joanna Gaines. I feel like I make jokes to her expense a lot. Um, but hospitality, discipleship, care for others, serving, raising kids, following Jesus, it's all messy. It's messy in person. It's messy in emotions, but praise God, Jesus got messy for us. He lived in the pristine realm of glory. Everything was so wonderfully organized that those women on the home edit couldn't even comprehend it. And yet he descended into our mess, into our chaos, into our filth to love us, to care for us, and ultimately to die for us. It was fruitful, even if it wasn't photogenic. Now there are ways in which a messy house or a kitchen that is unsanitary might be a hindrance to fruitfulness and loving others. We should be clean, respectful people. But here's the challenge. If having a picturesque house or if having a heart free from the anxiety of messy people is ultimately what is keeping you back from pursuing fruitfulness in your life, then you might need a vision correction you might be prioritizing perception in the eyes of the world instead of faithfulness to the God who saves you. It's not just a female problem. It applies to all of us in different ways. For me, my manger is my lawn. I love mowing my lawn. At this conference we went to, one pastor made a comment about his love for lawn mowing and all of the guys I went to just stared at me. So apparently I'm not secret about it. I love mowing it fertilizing it, trimming it, edging it, touching it, (laughs) whispering to it. But I will admit, and every fiber of my being does not want me to admit this here in church before my wife with you as witnesses, that there are times, I'm not looking at my wife, where I willingly choose to mow the lawn when I ought not to. Where I choose to have those crisp lawn lines to the detriment of caring for my family. There are times where the lawn can wait, where the lines can fade in order for me to bring relief to my wife and my kids because God cares for fruitfulness and faithfulness. There might be times when the adventure which will show well on Instagram or the buck which will score well on the scales might need to wait in order to produce faithfulness in other areas. But as disruptive as this might be to our modern psyche, there is immense hope in life in Proverbs 14 verse four because this provides the affirmation of God himself that we can free ourselves from the weight of perception and likes and retweets and the greatest feasts in our home and the cleanest lawns and the most well-behaved kids and instead we get to rest in fruitfulness according to God's standards. That God is pleased when our lives are filled with the mess of caring for others and glorifying him. Our last thought group It's a longer one, deals with truth. 
in the context of relationships is a great way to end our passage today. Proverbs 14, verses 5 through 12. A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. A scoffer seeks wisdom in vain, but knowledge is easy for a man of understanding. Leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. The wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, but the folly of fools is deceiving. Fools mock at the guilt offering, but the upright enjoy acceptance. The heart knows its own bitterness, and no stranger shares its joy. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. So here's the longest kind of proverb of the day, and it kind of builds itself in two units. In verses five through eight, we're meant to desire this relationship with the wise man in contrast to the fool. A wise man tells the truth. A wise man has an ease of gaining understanding. The prudent is able to discern his way and therefore be helpful to you. The fool can't figure out his own life let alone help you figure out yours. As creatures made in the image of God, we are relational creatures meant to be influenced in the context of relationships. When you think of those relationships closest to you are the ones which influence your heart and your hope, ones that see the realities of God clearly with wise discernment, or do they present to you the world's wisdom as your wisdom? The reality is behind verse uh, seven, the grammar might suggest that actually the longer you listen to the fool, the longer you're in the presence of the fool, the less likely you will be to hear truth. That those relationships, when they become a source of counsel to you, it actually dulls your ears to the counsel of God. And this is what highlights the problem in verses nine through 12. Why is it important, twice now we've seen this in the Proverbs, to assess and question your own relationships? Because behind the relationships you have in your life is your proximity to hope. Behind the relationships you have in your life is your proximity to hope. Look at how this is presented in Proverbs 14, nine through 12. Fools mock at the guilt offering but the upright enjoy acceptance. The heart knows its own bitterness and no stranger shares its joy. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Even in laughter, the heart may ache and the end of joy may be grief. So what do we see in this passage? Don't we see the harsh reality that this world will not understand your hope? That fools will mock, they will laugh, they will poke fun at the realization and recognition you have in your life that your sin is your biggest problem. That your sin needs to be dealt with. The world says your heart is the key to your own satisfaction, but the Bible says our hearts are the keys to our problem. Follow your heart, says the world, and you'll find joy, but there is a way that seems right. It seems natural. It seems easy. It seems shareable. It seems easy, but it leads to death. Moreover, as alone as we might feel, seeing a world that's laughing, the Proverbs makes room that that laughter might be quiet confession of grief, that your friends and your coworkers who are seemingly engaging in all the things that our hearts in their flesh want to consume are doing so at a never-ending pace because they worry about what they might consider in the silence of their own heart. They are worried what would happen if they look back at the house they think they are building. But verse 10 is a striking verse when it comes to our experience in this world. The heart knows its own bitterness and no stranger shares its joy. Here's a twofold problem. Problem one, as Christians, we know our hearts are wicked and we have no friend within. <laughs> problem two, even though we know that Jesus has come to save us from our own hearts, 
the world will refuse to acknowledge that joy because they refuse to acknowledge that problem. Therefore, there's this compounding hopelessness. Hopelessness where we look in and see our own sin and hopelessness when we look out and no one shares in our joy. Perhaps you felt that way. Perhaps you feel that there is no comfort inside or outside that finds the way we spend our time, our money, and our goals to be silly realities. But as we consider this idea, we long for friends of faithful witness. We long for those who seek to discern their way according to God's path. We desire those who lift our heads when we are weak and rejoice in the joy of redemption. In short, this life is brutal and hopeless without the church. Wisdom might seem like something that is meant to be applied individually and personally, that we hear it, we go, and we live as our own autonomous unit. But here we see that wisdom is corporate. We need each other because the world wages war against our wisdom. The world wages war against the God whom we are to fear. The world wages war against the problem of our sin. The world wages war against the joy of redemption. But the privilege we have in the church is that we no longer walk alone. That we are to rejoice with the joy we have in the gospel, where we are able to adequately see the sin that lies in our hearts, but realize there is a solution in Jesus. There is freedom from sin. There is restoration towards God. There is a renewal in a new community. You see, as we seek to slow down and read Proverbs in our church and in our devotional life, we know that as those lives are changed individually, that this life will be changed corporately. In a few verses, we've looked at relationships, parenting, justice, obedience, Instagram, our words and our hopes, but there is nothing more transformative than finding Jesus faithful in all of those spheres. And that's what we are called to do together as the church. To enter into the midst of verse 10 and say, Jesus knows and I know and we have faith that this God is worth every step on the path of wisdom for we have seen it in his son. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the kaleidoscope of wisdom. We pray that in ways a single sermon cannot do, that we press and prod and examine and squeeze and smell and taste the wisdom in Proverbs. That we would find there is not one sphere of our life which is disconnected from the hope we have in Christ. Lord, I pray that as we are changed, we help those around us change. That we would share in each other's joy because we share in each other's Savior. We pray for all these things in your name. Amen.